This is a Crow's Nest podcast. And welcome to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, and I am excited to introduce this week's guest. We have Bradley um, Harper, whose name just got stuck in my throat real bad. I'm so sorry. Uh, who is an author that has a keen interest in comics and Titanic, two things that I particularly enjoy. So I am very excited to have you. Hello. Well, hello, Alexia. Thank you for having me uh, on today. So uh, how did you like that comic book? I really liked it. Um, for for those who uh, I who don't know, Bradley gave me a copy of his comic that is not Titanic related. That's more of like a noir, like old style. I'm having a hard time coming with the words to describe it. Kind of like gothic. Yeah, gothic. That's the one that I wanted. Like for some reason, vampires coming into my mind, but there's like not really a vampire involved. But like that feeling. Oh, like, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was a, a poem that I wrote uh, sometime back when I was going through a rough me. patch of my life. And I find that my, my best poetry is when I'm depressed. It's a way for me to kind of externalize how I feel and I can look at it and deal with it uh, better. And then I had it uh, made into a comic book. And then that comic book I made into an animation and it's been winning awards at festivals around the world. I just It just got selected the Atlanta Horror Fest. None of this is uh, Titanic uh, related. No, it's still cool for that for that uh, detour. But uh, since you mentioned the comic book, I, I just thought I'd bring that up. Okay, let's segue now. To <laughs> yes, the Titanic. To, are you are we ready to go back to Titanic? Uh, yeah. So, what is your Titanic story? If it doesn't have to do with you know dark gothic comic books. <laughs> Well, um, I, as you said, I'm, a, I'm a, an author. I had uh, I have two books out. My third novel is coming out uh, next Monday. Uh, that would be September the 18th. I'm not sure when this is playing, but after September that, the 18th. So, after that, so anyone who's listening, uh, please go ahead and get a copy of... Ta-da! Reflections in a Dragon's Eye. Oh. Tell me about that. I know it's probably not Titanic, but it sounds cool. So please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it's a modern day uh, uh, police procedural. I'm a retired army uh, pathologist, and oh um, wow! And I've done about 200 autopsies, and uh, and I've also uh, I've also done about 20 forensic death investigations, and I wanted to. Uh, so I use that to, in my in my writing. So the book that's coming out on Monday, that's. Uh, I there's a condition called uh, conditional dependent learning. Sometimes when people are very drunk or very high, they encode a memory they can only recall when they're when they return that physiologic state. So I have a guy who uh, sees a body dumped when he's drunk, and afterwards can't recall exactly where it was. And the police finally decide uh, that they uh, they need to take him take him uh, you know back to the where he's in the area where the body was discovered and get him drunk. And the problem is since the time he saw it, he's become a recovering alcoholic. So, you know, you're willing to put the man's sobriety at risk on the chance that he finds, helps them uh, figure out who the, who the killer is. So again, that's off topic. How I got into Titanic. Okay. Now we're there. Uh, my first I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, fiction. I uh, love the first book crime. I put Arthur Conan Doyle on the hunt for Jack the Ripper. It was called a knife in the fog. It was Edgar finalist. Uh, translated into Japanese and the audiobook oh, cool. won an award. And I'm working with the director right now in London. We're working on an adaptation. So my agent uh, proposed for my third book that I write uh, something set aboard the uh, the Titanic. So, you know, I like crime. Obviously, my first my first two books both are historical fiction slash crime. Mm-hmm. And so the thought I had was uh, on this one, I discovered a, a gang of all female thieves that was called the uh, the Forty Elephants, and they operated from around 1780 to 1953 out of a pub called the Elephant and Castle. Hence the name the uh, the Forty Elephants. Sure. And at the time of the the Titanic sailing, uh, the the leader was a woman named Mary Carr, who also worked as a uh, uh, an artist model because she had a very long and elegant neck. She was also called Swan Neck. 
Oh. Uh, so she was the leader at the time, and I have her and a couple of her associates on board the Titanic to steal a painting by the artist Blondell that was on board and, and went down with the ship. And opposing them, I have a young man named Harry Worth. Harry Worth uh, is the son of Adam Worth, and Adam Worth was a real person. He was the uh, inspiration for uh, Sherlock Holmes' nemesis, uh, Professor Moriarty. Adam Worth uh, was a consulting criminal. He would uh, plan other people's heist, and then he would get like 15% of the, of the of the take. And a large estate in England, he had a steam yacht. He ran a he had a stable of racehorses, and uh, so he was. Uh, he certainly put the lie to uh, crime doesn't pay. Well, late in life, he finally got caught for a, a bank job, and uh, when he got out, he was in poor health and didn't have much money. So he approached uh, William Pinkerton, the head of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, and said, look, I have this painting you've been contracted to recover. I'll let you have it on condition that, number one, you don't prosecute me. Number two, you give me $25,000. And third, when my son comes of age, I want you to make him a Pinkerton agent because I don't want him to follow me into a life of crime. So I have the son of a master criminal uh, playing a cat and mouse game with these female thieves on board the uh, the Titanic. And oh, by the way, they also discover there was a book, uh, a very expensive book that was uh, had been sold at auction that had over a thousand diamonds embedded in it. Uh, it was a copy of Omar Khayyam's The Rubaiyat, and uh, it also went down with the ship. So they learn about the about this book. So they decide to, you know, to steal the book, remove all the all the gems, and then and then put the book back. Is figuring it won't be discovered till they're all in New York and they can get off with it. So I've got uh, two two items actually. And uh, <clears throat> Alfred Hitchcock made up a, a term called a a, a a MacGuffin, and a MacGuffin is the item that drives the the story. In the Maltese Falcon, it's the statuette. Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. So in this story, I actually have two uh, MacGuffins. I have this book and I have this painting by Blondell. The Blondell painting was a, a Circassian woman walking out of a Roman bath naked and, and uh, was was highly, uh, well, it was estimated to be worth around 100,000 pounds. And the owner finally got 60,000 pounds for it when the ship went down. And it was estimated that today's money would be worth about two and a half million dollars. Wow. That's incredible. What? <laughs> For people who don't know, what is the title of the book if they want to if they want to grab okay. it? Okay, well, it's not out yet. I'm pitching it right now to uh, to various uh, agents and, and publishers. the uh, The title is Maiden Voyage, Love and Larceny Aboard the uh, Titanic. I completed a master's in creative writing last year at Napier University in, in Edinburgh, Scotland. I lived in Scotland for eight months, and the last trimester I did online back in the states. So this novel was my thesis project. And so I had to have, I think, the first 50 pages, as well as a synopsis for the entire work uh, in order to complete the uh, the program. And so after I completed, I continued to work on it. And I just now have it ready uh, to start pitching. That's so cool. I mean, and also to what you were saying, about, sorry for the detraction. True crime is one of my personal fascinations. So please never apologize for talking about true crime. Because uh, I will listen eagerly. I have a incredible fascination, especially with how things have developed. And you know, to loop things back to Titanic, because that's technically what the shows are about. It's fascinating just to watch the world of forensic technology changing over even just the past five to ten years, and seeing what we're able to now discover that was basically unfathomable twenty plus years ago. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I do a talk. Uh, to Sherlock Holmes societies and forensic uh, or crime writers, I should say, I call Sherlock Holmes a science fiction. And I uh, all the techniques that Doyle has his detective use were not in existence at that time. For example, uh, at one point, uh, Holmes says he has this database of like 34 different uh, tire types, and no one had a database like that. That allowed him, the detective, to look at an unknown compared to knowns and determine what type of tire made that, that track. And nobody had anything like that at the time. And so uh, later on, uh, a French uh, gentleman who studied both law and medicine uh, used the, the home stories as inspiration to form the world's first crime lab in Lyon, France. 
And there's a very famous uh, story that where he used to prove the worth of the, such scientific investigation using scientific principles to solve crime. Because before then, it was, crimes were solved basically by eyewitnesses, confessions, and alibis. And those were the mm -hmm. three major tools that detectives had. Well, even the word detective is interesting. It comes from the Latin word detegere, which means to unroof or to expose. And so the purpose of the detective is to uh, expose the uh, the uh, truth, to expose uh, evil or uh, or uh, or a crime, and so I, just the whole idea of of how of using scientific methods, objective uh, evidence to determine guilt uh, was a radical idea. It's 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 just it's really interesting. I talk about this on almost any episode that I do, which is that viewing the Titanic story any historical story, but specifically in this context, Titanic from our modern day lens is both fortunate and unfortunate because so many things that were just normal at the time will never happen again. And it's hard to understand those sorts of contexts, things like the, you know, how strong the invisible class barriers were or how actually that's the biggest example I can think of. Never mind. That's the end of the sentence. <laughs> Well, you know, you are right. Uh, I'm very fortunate that <clears throat> I was living in the UK uh -huh. at the time I was doing my research on this because when, when I was able to visit the Titanic Museum in Belfast and uh, the Maritime Museum in Southampton, uh, the bulk of the crew came from Southampton. And right. whereas the museum is not totally dedicated to the Titanic, there's a huge section of it that is, and they have a wonderful uh, uh, display. One of the things that struck me, there's a large map of Southampton at the at the time of the, the, the of 1912 when the ship sailed and every household that had a crew member aboard there's a red dot and the floor is covered in these red dots it was said that there wasn't a, a, a child in the public schools in Southampton who either didn't have a family member uh, involved or had a friend or you know some, some classmate it really was a heavy blow to the entire uh, community uh, so many people died at one time uh, mm -hmm. from this this relatively small city i just learned the other day again nothing to do with titanic but um i was younger when hurricane katrina hit um not to randomly take us back to 2005 for no reason there's a point to this and um I was listening to a podcast that I really enjoy called My Favorite Murder, and one of the hosts, Karen, her story for that week was discussing Charity Hospital in New Orleans. And I learned a lot of astonishing facts about what happened in the aftermath of the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. But one of the facts that I guess I, I, I know I'd heard it sometime, but I'd probably forgotten because, you know, it's been almost almost 20 years, 18 years since um, Hurricane Katrina, is that it, it decimated about 25 percent of the population of New Orleans. And it has not recovered since. And it's it's hard to think about things like you're just discussing in, you know, with the loss of sailors in Southampton, where you're saying, you know, there it, 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 there were so many households that had sailors. And just when something like this literally comes in, just wipes out a significant portion of it. It's exceptionally hard to recover from that, not just societally or economically, but also literally in terms of, you know, population recovery. It's 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 a very long road forward. Yeah, one of the um, touching on that, one of the big challenges in World War Two, they had high casualty rates among bomber crews and they hmm. quickly found it was important that the next morning they have replacements sitting in the empty seats at the mess hall. If the bomber crews, you know, after a rough night, if they lost, say, three or four uh, planes with their crews, if they came back the next morning, they would look at all these empty seats, and that was right staring in their face, you know, reminding them of how how likely it was that they were going to be lost in the next, uh, you know, mission. So keeping those seats filled to uh, pretend that everything was normal was very important to keep the morale up of, of these of these crews that had the highest casualty rates of any particular occupation in the war. That's a very sad fact. I thought I had more to say about that, but it's that's just it's interesting to be so cognizant of the fact, like, ah, 
there will be a visible sense of loss for these these young men. They'll see it. They have eyes. They can see. Um, but, you know, at the time, you know, our resources then were different. But at the time, they were like, well, instead of doing something about it, just just fill it, fill it in. Everyone smile. It's fine. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm fortunate. Although I served 37 years in the Army, I I never never went to war. I actually volunteered to go to uh, to Iraq to the Green Zone. Uh, oh, Afghanistan. I'm sorry, to the Green Zone. And at the last minute, uh, was uh, substituted for a more junior officer. The senior officer there found out I would actually technically outranked him, and he he didn't want a senior doctor in the back ranks and had me pulled, and they sent somebody else. But uh, but yeah, but I've dealt with with that. I've sent lots of soldiers into combat and and helped many to to come back. And uh, I think war is about the stupidest uh, human enterprise I can imagine. Uh, sorry, uh, but the loss of life with the Titanic uh, in that community was was equivalent, I guess, to a to a bombing raid on a, a, say a Dieppe in World War Two. You know, it was just uh, just devastating and. Uh, and they uh, they remember to this day. Uh, one of the interesting things, you know, the the Titanic conference where we met in uh, Las Vegas yes. was hearing the stories of some of the descendants of the survivors. Uh, really made it more personal to me. You know, uh, there's the history that's in books, and there's the the histories in families. Uh, it makes it much more real than in uh, in some sort of uh, you know. A history book, and I, I really appreciated those those stories an awful lot. I remember one that struck me. A uh, lady said that her grandmother was one of the survivors, and as the Carpathia was approaching, and the sun wasn't up yet, and they were terrified that the the ship was going to hit them, mm-hmm. you know, blundering about in the dark. And they, uh, this woman had letters that she'd written to her daughter and set them on fire so they could wave the burning letters up in the air with hopes that the the ship would see them and not not uh, not uh, run over them um so i've never been in that in that kind of situation but just imagine that everything you've been through already uh the lives that you saw all lost and the voices calling out in the darkness and then uh then think at the last minute you might die as well now many of the, the survivors on board the carpathia couldn't couldn't sleep below decks they were mm-hmm. so afraid uh and they had to be given uh, sleeping potions to help help uh, go to sleep because they were just because it was still going through bad weather. It was going through ice for for quite a while after their their rescue, and and that sense of uh, hyper alertness uh, just wouldn't wouldn't fade away. And they had their own form of uh, PTSD. Mm-hmm. I I've you know had a couple strange nothing. I've never been like close to death in a shipwreck. But I think we've all had some sort of harrowing experience that it makes it difficult to sleep the next night. And I'm just trying to think if I went through something related like Titanic, they would need to give me opiates at the minimum and probably keep me swaddled in a blanket. Just that sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. Where it's just, you know, I'd be so afraid of being cold. Yeah. Like I'd be I'd be paranoid of being cold. It'd be, it wouldn't matter if I was overheating or sweating. It'd be like, no, you can't take this blanket off. I'm going to freeze. I'm going to freeze to death if if you leave me alone. It and well, you know I, I do talk about they, that kind of stuff. Ugh. Yeah, they'd have to give me a pretty uh, generous drink allowance to get me back on board a ship. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 some of the one of one of the many privileges of doing my show has been I have gotten to talk to some um, survivors and descendants. And that's, there's been a number of stories that surprised me. And one of them was, um, I just talked to Ivan Fleming the other, the other week, and he was telling me about how his mother was not only rescued by the Carpathia, but shortly after took a voyage back to the UK aboard it. Ah. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. Maybe. Maybe if I really had to, it would just be one of those things where you kind of got to like take a deep breath and just, all right, this is what I have to do. I'm going to have to do it, but it would be very hard. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't imagine what the the feelings she must have had getting back aboard that ship, all the memories that that she would have of that, uh, of being loaded onto that ship. 
that would be that'd be tough. That's one tough person is all I can say. Agree that I don't know that I have the constitution to do that, but I've I've talked to a few people on my show also about trauma and how a lot of members of crew and a lot of in particular but then also a lot of survivors of titanic don't exactly have happy lives afterwards yeah if okay i'm I'm gonna make a tangential reference here but trust me it'll get back to your point Mm -hmm. um the gentleman who who used the sherlock holmes stories as a uh inspiration for crime labs he came up what he called the uh, the contact principle and he said every you know no two solid objects can come into contact with one another without each leaving some trace upon the other in other words a criminal can't leave the crime scene without some trace of the scene being left on them and without them leaving some trace of themselves behind Mm -hmm. i think also events in our lives significant people you know significant interactions we have with other people those also leave a uh, a uh, a uh, a trace in our lives, which can sometimes even go on to succeeding generations. So that contact principle, uh, um, I, and again, uh, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that the observer becomes part of the uh, the phenomena. We are all inter, inter uh, interconnected, and uh, there's no way that something like that can can happen to you without there being some trace, some residual effect that will be with you for the rest of your life. I think that holds true. You know, there's, you know, people talk a lot about things like, you know, trauma responses and what that really, you know, often boils down to is reacting to things that happened in your past that, you know, have an impact to you still today. And that holds true. And that it, you know, important moments don't just leave you untouched good and bad moments, you know, People often remember particular highs and particular lows in life, which is, you know, it's a good thing on the one hand, you know, you do want to be able to remember really, really good moments in your life. But it also means that there's the propensity to very strongly remember things that impact you terribly. Yeah. Well, you know, our brain is hardwired to keep us alive. Mm -hmm. And so it's always looking for the for the risk, for the danger to us. And so the events in our lives, which are are painful or uncomfortable, the brain's going to fix on that more avidly because it's going to look for a lesson on how I, how can I use this to protect myself from the future. Whereas the happy moments, you know, we bask in in the moment, and they certainly leave you know pleasant memories, but the uh, images, the memories usually aren't as strong as those moments that could that the brain can use uh, for you know. For, for future risk uh, avoidance. Is that something that you found in your, you know, past forensics work? Could I call it forensics work? Yeah. And well, okay. uh, yes. In fact, <clears throat> part of my, uh, part of my, um, my um, master's program in Scotland, we had to come up with a, uh, some talk because the majority of us, although we all wanted to be writers, a lot of people, if they want to pay their bills, they wind up teaching. And so I had to come up with a, a lesson plan on some aspect of teaching, of, of teaching writing. And so I looked how the brain acquires and processes information. <clears throat> and I looked at the senses uh, primarily. Uh, and uh, the olfactory sense is the strongest of the of the five strongest by the other four go up to the uh, cerebral cortex and are processed. The olfactory nerve runs along the nasal sinus and goes straight to the uh, to the reptilian brain, the animal brain at the base of of, of the brain, and that keys into uh, the uh, amygdala. And the amygdala has very strong uh, emotions: feeding, fighting, fleeing, and uh, and sexual procreation. You know, so any so if I tell people if you want to write a scene that puts the reader into it, uh, use use uh, use smell, and that will give them a very strong uh, image in their mind. So what I'm trying to say is that we uh, we are biologic uh, animals creatures, and emotion is very tightly uh, tied to our our intellect. It's very hard to be totally dispassionate, you know, uh, like Spock. You know, even even thing, you know, even just looking at the order of the universe, uh, 
you get get a sense of awe and a sense of how small you are. So uh, I think that you know we're all very emotional uh, uh, driven, mm-hmm. uh, even at our at our driest and most intellectual. And uh, we would be foolish to uh, to put to disregard how our emotions drive our the things that we look for, the things we learn, and how our our brain utilizes information. To bring this back to Titanic in a very odd way, like. I think that Titanic in particular has a very particular, to use the same word twice, draw for people in a way that other times and things and events don't have. Well, not all, but many don't have. And it does seem to trigger some kind of response in people. What do you think that's about? Why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, it's the same reflex as when people drive by a, 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 a bad car accident. You don't want to look, but you can't help, help but do it. And again, I think the, the brain is saying, you know, how can I keep this from happening to me? What lessons can I learn from these other persons, uh, other people's uh, misfortune? Um, and it was, you know, as in my experience as a physician, I've sat on risk management boards and I look at uh, um, medical disasters where there was a terrible outcome. And my experience has been, it's usually not just one thing going wrong. It's a series of things, a series of failures that go wrong. And how can you learn from that to prevent it from happening in the future? Why do you think Titanic in particular has such a romantic lens to it? Because I mentioned that I like true crime. So I watch forensic files. I listen to podcasts related to it, but I would in no way consider that to be a romantic pastime of mine. It's an informative thing, but I don't think about it with any tone of rosiness or optimism. It's as a, as I mentioned, it's purely informative, but for many people, they look back at Titanic or they look at the the legend, what has now become like almost legend and lore with this very whimsical view. Well, I think it's the cast of, of characters. You had some of the richest people on earth. They were truly the, the very apex of the society of their time. They were living a very elegant uh, lifestyle. You had a fashion designer, a a multimillionaire, a movie actress, uh, you know, people that were greatly admired. And yet at that moment, they were, they were just as human as anyone else. So the feeling that, you know, that kind of uh, commonality that, you know, at the end of the day, no matter how rich you are, how glamorous you are, we're all subject to this, you're all subject to mother nature. Uh, And none of us are intrinsically better suited or, you know, better or different than anyone else. So I think it's that sense that, you know, that that commonality that there we're in essence, we're all the same and that the Titanic is an objective lesson in, in that in that truth. Do you think that's also partially why so many people are interested in true crime now? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think so. Um, you know, uh, back in the days, think of the grim fairy tales. Well, the scariest thing was going off into the forest. This is when people lived in small villages and the forest was was right there. So it was yeah. a way to make sure the children didn't go wandering off. Now, there are monsters True. in that forest which might, you know, put you in the oven and, 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 and cook you. So it was a way <laughs> of of um, of avoiding having a next generation avoid uh, doing dangerous, uh, dangerous things. I think we need monsters. I think we all need monsters. We need something to be afraid of. That that rustling sound under under the bed, you know that that dark shape in the closet. Something to get, bring balance to our life. To counter, you know, we need light, but I think also we need some dark to make us cautious. There is a book that people reference a lot that I have not personally read yet it's one of i have a to read list a mile long but this one is called it's by gavin de becker it's called the gift of fear survival signals that protect us from violence and it's a self-help book that teaches or encourages people to embrace the gut instinct and not to ignore that gift of fear Hmm. and i think that goes along with what you're saying about needing monsters 
Yeah, yeah, we are conscious of only about three to five percent of our environment. Yeah, of our environment, our subconscious is soaking in all this uh, peripheral information that we're not consciously aware of, and that intuition uh, and a change in a person's inflection, you know, their body posture, uh, how they lean towards you, anything, you know, little things like that that we're not consciously aware of, and yet our subconscious has learned to associate that with uh, with dangerous behavior or certainly warning signals. And so I yeah, I am a big believer in listening to your gut uh and you know the intuition and um being fat dumb and happy is great if you're a rabbit, you know, buying buying <laughs> being the the next meal for a hawk. Yeah, I I figure I'd rather look silly in the near future than than dead. Yeah. I mean you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's just better to be safe. And I think that that's super valuable, but I know that there are a lot of people, especially, you know, people that are in situations where they're, you know, the victims of domestic violence or so where it's not super easy to do that sort of thing. But, yeah. you know, if you are in a position where you're able to, it's definitely wise to listen to those feelings that are telling you that what's happening is, is just not good. Yeah. Well, um, in my uh, my first two books, I had uh, one of my major characters was um, a uh, a uh, a woman. So to write her dialogue convincingly, to write her inner thoughts convincingly, I had to think very hard, uh, especially in the 19th century. You know, when women had less power even than they have now. And one quote that I I read from a, a woman, I can't remember now who it was, but she said, "Most men when they meet a woman." are afraid that she'll laugh at him. Mm. A lot of women, when they meet a man, are afraid that he will kill them. Yeah. And, and I think it's a lot. Yeah. And I think that shows the power mm. d- discrepancy between the two, because men tend to be larger and stronger and uh, more physically aggressive than, than women are. And so uh, men are are not as aware of how uh, an environment might appear threatening to a, a woman because they've got that masculine body habitus and that shield and the sense of, uh, of, uh, of entitlement that, uh, oh, this can't happen to me. Yeah. I'm not a very big person. I'm five foot five. Um, but I, I do play roller derby and, you know, I have a big personality. So I think many people, when they look at me, the thought <laughs> is, you know, oh yeah, she can handle herself. And, you know, none of my partners that I've dated, my male partners have ever been like big guys. They've all been taller than me. They're all, they've all like 5'10 or 5'11 or so, but, and neither of them have in any way ever been violent towards me. But if it had come to it, like if we had ended up in a boxing ring for some reason, they could take me. They're just bigger. They are both faster than I am, even 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 though I'm the one that exercises, I'm the one that routinely slams into people. That's me. But they're faster than I am. And, you know, again, they could get my arms in a way where I couldn't reach them. There's so many little advantages that they would have over me where it's like, could I win? Yeah, sure. It would take a lot more effort, though. And maybe that's just because I'm a terrible fighter. That's, maybe that's the reason. But, you know, I'm just I'm being realistic about myself. Just, just me. There's other people that might be like, that would never happen to me. And I'm very happy for you. But me, I, I'm not that sort of tough. And it's that inherent knowledge of, well, should this ever go badly, it would be for me. Yeah. You'd be fine. And of course, as a physician working in the emergency room, I saw many uh-huh. examples of women that were physically abused by their by their partner. So I don't yeah. know. Okay. How and this is a direction. Ugh. Yeah. No, this is I'll the direction. Always... I'm sure you. you yeah. I'm sorry. No, all I was going to say is I'm not. I'm not. I, I. I very much applaud you for the work that you have done. There's a lot of you know. It takes a lot of stomach to to do things. You know, to work with victims of 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 any sort because they've been through a lot, and being sensitive to that is important. So it's nice to hear you talk about people with that level of kindness and empathy and consideration. Oh, well, thank you. I, I can tell you that my my wife has been a great teacher to me. Uh, at one point when we were stationed over in Germany, I was a deputy commander for the hospital. So people come to me all day long with their problems. It's my job to fix them. 
I come home and she starts telling me her problems at work and I try to fix them and she gets frustrated. I got frustrated. And finally, after this went on for a month or so, I suddenly realized she didn't want me to fix her problems. Mm-hmm. She just wanted me to listen. Yeah. And yeah, that sounds uh, very obvious to you. But let me tell you, for me, that was like a, a major um, life changing insight that she didn't she wasn't talking to the deputy commander of the hospital. She's talking to her husband. Yeah. And I had to shift gears. I had to change my role uh, as being the problem solver to just an empathetic listener who cared how she felt and how her problems were affecting her. I learned that when I volunteered for the Trevor Project, which is a um, crisis chat and um, hotline for queer youth um, in the United States. And one of the first things they teach you during your training is the difference between sympathy and empathy. And part of it was, as you were saying, learning to listen to the problem because, and I think this is the word, wording I'm stealing from an, a YouTuber um therapist named Jonathan Decker. I think he says that it's, you know, if you listen to their, you know, to their emotions and to their, what's going on with them, they will usually take care of the problem. It's usually something that they can or should handle. They just want to have someone help them deal with what they're feeling so that they can then go and tackle the issue. You know, one of the ways my wife helps me write is I'm having a problem with the story. A lot of times as I'm explaining it to her, the solution will will, uh, will uh, come to me. But externalizing it, you know, ha- if I have to think really hard how to explain it to someone else, that forces me to analyze that problem in a, in a different way, a different pathways in my brain or something. And mm-hmm. by externalizing it like that, it helps me to see it objectively or at arm's length. And usually by the time I finish explaining the problem, I, I know what I, what, what the next step should be. That often happens to me as well. Like if someone just gives me the opportunity to talk through whatever is bothering me, usually that helps me get that initial whatever response is out of the way. And then I start literally just talking myself through solving my own problem. Very, It's very rare that I actually need someone to completely come in and solve it for me. I'll usually work it mostly out by myself. Yeah. But it helps okay. to have somebody. So going back to the Titanic, I'm sorry, I've, I've led you far, far afield, <laughs> but Two of my favorite real life people, first of yes. all, is uh, Margaret Brown. Uh, of course, a she classic. Was just, uh, well, you know, one of the things I found out in my research is that she boxed for fitness. She didn't spar, but she worked a heavy bag. And uh, yeah, that was a, That's a so thing cool. at that time for, for, yeah, yeah. And so I use that in my story at one point. You know, there was a guy who um, <clears throat> passed himself off as a baron and he was a big phony. And uh, once they were on the Carpathia, he crawled on top of a, a, a pile of, uh, of, uh, of blankets. So I have uh, Mar- Margaret Brown and Mary Carr team up together, and they throw the guy off the blankets and beat the crap out of him. Excellent. <laughs> so they can get the blankets to other people. I, I can see Margaret Brown doing that. And one thing that struck me when the Carpathia arrived they had to debark by ticket class. So the first class passengers got off first, then the mm-hmm. second, then the third. Well, Margaret Brown did not leave the dock until she made sure every third class passenger had some place to spend the night. That just shows the quality of the person that she was. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm, uh, she's in the story. Obviously, I couldn't keep someone like that out. The other person no. is Charles Lightoller, the, the second officer, uh, the senior officer who survived. And I was fascinated to learn uh, if, if you saw the movie Dunkirk, uh, they have one character, they never name him, but he has this boat and he and his son and a sea scout go across and help to the evacuation. Well, that was uh, Charles Lightoller. He is uh, his little motor yacht, the Sundowner, usually carried up to about 25 or so people. Well, he and his son and another young man went across in the little boat flotilla and rescued 130 uh, soldiers from death or, uh, or uh, capture. And I just thought, and I wrote that as an epilogue to the, to the, uh, to the book, because I have him at one point, he's watching the people drown. So mm. He made it to this overturned uh, collapsible and he's with one of my main characters and they're watching all of the death and destruction. And so this is kind of a redemption for Lightholder all those years later when he's able to do something to save people after he was helpless to, 
do anything when the when the ship sank. Yeah, I don't remember how I initially learned that he assisted with the evacuation at Dunkirk, but it was a fact that somebody told me a while ago. I thought it was super cool how, you know, the Venn diagrams of history overlap. It is. It is. And he was 66 years old at that time. And uh, so it uh, t- it took a took an awful lot of courage to do that. But he was a he was a, a proper British officer. And, you know, World War One, he had, had two commands. He rammed a uh, German submarine at one point in his uh, mm-hmm. his uh, destroyer. And uh, so he was a. He was a guy, and of course, even before the Titanic, he had an exciting life. He was uh, he mined gold in Alaska for a while. He was a a, a, a cattle wrangler. At one point, a ship he was serving on uh, sank off the coast of Brazil, and he lived on an island for eight days before a passing ship saw his uh, his campfire. So, I mean, <laughs> this guy had a very full life. Wow, what Lifetime movie is based off of him? <laughs> I think we need our mini series. Where's Netflix? Get on this. Yeah, yeah. You could probably have like three uh three movies about his life, all the things that he did. You should do a mini series, just call it Light Toller, have it be like eight episodes <laughs> eight, nine episodes just of his crazy life going through every single main what not every, but like most major disasters in a fifty year period. Oh yeah. I also have uh, Violet Jessup, you know, the yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the, the stewardess was on each of the three Olympic class ships and was on uh, the Britannic when it rammed, uh, it was rammed by another ship on the mm-hmm. Titanic, of course. And then, um, me, on the, the Britannic when it hit the mine, rather, the Olympic when it rammed the ship and the Titanic when it sank. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I made a comment as if, if I was getting on board a ship when I saw her there, I'd try to get off. Yep. If I didn't find out she was on board until the ship had left port, I'd stay as close to her as possible because she, you know, she survived all three of those, uh, those uh, disasters. I read her, uh, her, uh, her memoir and mm-hmm. uh, she was a pretty interesting lady. I'm sure she is, but I have to admit that if I were one of her friends, I would be super suspicious of her after the third time. It'd be like, <laughs> I need to talk to you, Violet, because every ship you've been on's kind of had a big thing happen to it just while you were on it that's the thing yeah not accusing you i just have questions (laughs) don't need to be so angry though it's just i it it's so crazy to think that that would just uh, that just happens i think after the second time i was in a in a literal shipwreck i would stop going on ships yeah well, she made she made very good money, and the thing in her memoir, the thing she liked is, yeah, unlike most women in 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 her day, mm-hmm. when she was ashore, she was free. I mean, mm-hmm. she had her own money. She wasn't dependent on a man. She could do what she wanted to do. She was free to come and go as she pleased. She got to see the world, and uh, and so she she felt that uh, it, it was a very good lifestyle for her. Plus, she was able to support her her aging mother. And help put her younger brothers through school. So I mean, it uh, it, uh, it was it was a, a good good life for her. I think you bring up something pretty important there, which is that for women who were unattached, there were very few opportunities um, if you weren't like Violet and had your own money, and because earning money was difficult, there were very few jobs for women, and the ones that there were, just, even if you, know, you could get one, they just didn't pay very much. Yeah, yeah, uh, governess secretary yeah. uh seamstress yeah kitchen workers yeah things like that or you could get you know if you were even poorer you could be stable hands but you'd le- you'd earn less than your male counterparts oh yeah yeah <clears throat> uh, so that's a fair point well, yeah yeah so that was a that was a a pretty good lifestyle sort of like airplane stewardesses uh today i guess you know mm-hmm. or oh, excuse me flight attendants i think we uh that's the right word now, although they were called stewardesses back in the day. And um, it was interesting to me that one of their jobs was to uh, help the help the highborn ladies get into their corsets. Yep. Corseting is just, I've worn one for costumes a few times. And I know that there's some people that actually vouch for their comfort. But for me personally, I think maybe I just have weird ribs or I'm an uncomfortable person. I find them very uncomfortable after a while. Yeah, they just do. Yeah, I did tease one at the conferences. You know, there were two young ladies who dressed in period costume, and one was wearing mm-hmm. a 
a a corset and i commented on on what it did for her uh, her uh, posture uh, my mother's ni uh, turning 91 shortly and even mm -hmm. now when i'm eating with her she tells me to sit up straight yeah. i said maybe if i wore a corset i would finally uh, uh sit the way she wants me to i just sat up straighter in my chair if anyone was wondering <laughs> Whenever someone mentions mentions posture, I think it is a subconscious response. Everyone just kind of that does a quick straighten up in their seats, at least for a few seconds. Yeah, yeah. Makes Doesn't you last long. No, it give me about two seconds. I'll have to adjust my mic back down to where I'm slouching. <laughs> um, but back to Titanic for the nineteenth time. Uh, oh, I forgot my question. Oh, why? I mean. Outside of Leitoller and Margaret Brown, are there any passenger, survivor, or um, survivor or um, victim that you whose story you learned a detail about that stood out to you in particular? Oh well, I one that made me cry was about I can't remember his name now, but the young man, the day the Titanic sank, he turned seventeen. And was able to wear long trousers for the first time, and he was a he was a young he looked very young for his age. And the crew said, you know, you can go ahead and you can get on board one of the lifeboats. And he said, I will stand with the men. Yeah. And and uh, died with the ship. And I just uh, that was uh, that just made me it still kind of tears me up when I, I think about that. I don't remember his his name at the moment, but that was that was very very touching to me. Uh, and then there's the the baker who got so drunk yes. <laughs> and was so fat that he was one of the six they pulled out of the water and survived. Uh, that was, and then I read about one of the stokers when he was rescued, uh, when he got aboard the Carpathia, the first thing he did is he went down to the galley and crawled to, into an oven that wasn't actively fired to warm up. Sorry, that's not funny. It's a, uh, that's, that's such a move. Yeah. Uh, yikes. I just, there's so many fascinating things that happen in the aftermath of stories uh, of like this. And one of the stories in particular, I particularly really like that I've talked about a few times before. It's like, again, these little details of things that are seemingly, I mean, not seemingly, but that some people might ignore was like, um, I learned about the story of the Paracchio brothers. They worked in the a la carte restaurant, a pair of, you know, young men, Italian and in a portrait that was taken of them, one of them was wearing a tie and the other was wearing like a silk orchid when the tie is silk, but I guess you can't really see that. Um, and apparently they were both handmade by their mothers. And she told them to, you know, make sure you wear these, you know, whenever you're feeling happy or when you think of home or if you get your photo taken so that it'll be in the picture. And there's now a, there's these two pictures of them, one of one with the tie and one with the little flower. Uh. Oh, one thing that really affected me at the conference is, mm -hmm. as you know, as the ship was sinking, uh, Lightholder sent a bosun down with six of the stokers to open up the uh, the, the the second class uh, passage uh, gangway in hopes that the lifeboats could come back and take on additional additional survivors. Right, and uh, they were never seen again. And I learned in the nineteen eighty six uh, expedition, they found that door was open. Oh, I did it. So they did uh, complete their final task. Another um, sort of bittersweet but heartwarming story is about how none of the postal workers on board Titanic made it off because they were all trying to save the mail. Yeah. yeah. it's There's so many stories of human greatness out of Titanic that I personally think that's another reason that it's so romantically remembered i think is how i yeah. described it earlier sorry if i'm looking around i my the battery on my mouse died so i'm looking for a battery uh, well you know i i think the thing is that uh we ask ourselves what would i have done in that situation we compare ourselves to the actions of the, the of some who died and some who uh who survived and wonder how how we would we would have have measured up so i right. think that's part of the fascination as well I think so too. And it's just one of those things where you, you, you'll never know. It's, you, know you, you could train for something your whole life, but until it happens, you never know what's going to happen. Like 
for a somewhat lighthearted example, you know, I mentioned I play roller derby. Um, and if you're not familiar with roller derby, it's two teams. Each fields five people per, let's call it a round for simplicity. Uh, one on each team is a point scorer and they just kind of have to go around and around and around. And they get points for every member of the opposing team they pass, which obviously means the opposing team is like, let's not let her pass. Let's just hold the line. Very Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and, you know, we, we practice all kinds of things like this is how you catch someone when they're coming at you. And this is how you get them out of bounds. And there has been more than one time where during a game, my brain just goes completely blank as I see that point score coming and I just watch them go. This, oh, look, there they come. Oh, there they go. And I just didn't move. Stood right there. Well, that's because you don't have a uh, a uh, killer instinct. I guess, I guess not. But in my brain, I, it's like I know what I'm supposed to do. But every once in a while, you just sort of freeze up. Yeah. If it comes very comes at you uh, quickly, you mm-hmm. don't have really time to uh, to analyze it. That's why in in baseball they taught us. So I was I played second base. So when the batter's up and say there's somebody on first base, you think okay if the ball comes to me, this is what I'll do. So you've already thought it through mm-hmm. before the, the the picture makes the throw. So if it winds up coming to you, you've already you know worked through that, and it's and it's uh, instinct. You don't because you would say you got the ball, and now what am I going to do? Then if you do that, then both runners get on base and and uh, and you lost a chance to put somebody out. Yeah. Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. It's all right. It's a hell of water. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, this just goes, you know, back to commending people on the time. I mean, I'm sure there's people that froze up for a second, but there's just so many more stories of people that not only didn't freeze up, but immediately launched into action like charles shockin even though he was very drunk was throwing stuff overboard and trying to find ways to save people and um murdoch was running himself all up and down the starboard side loading people into lifeboats and jack phillips refused to leave the marconi room because he was trying to send out messages and the postal workers didn't want to leave their post and the electricians kept the lights on and this and that and this and that. there's so many stories of people overriding their fears to respond in incredibly calm, rational, and stoic ways. And you don't always see that. There's, I mean, there's always incredible stories of heroism that come out of things, but this was a very high proportion of heroism. Yeah. To me, it's fascinating the contrast between Captain Lord of the, uh, of the uh, California and Captain Rostron of the, the uh, Carpathia, how those two men uh, reacted in a very uh, similar situation. Lord didn't want to be bothered. You know, oh, there's rockets going off. I don't care what color are they, white? Okay, fine, we'll mm-hmm. take to sleep. And sure. Rostron, as soon as he gets the radio message, I mean, he was, thank God, he was such a good leader. Yeah. Uh, very efficient. They uh, they weren't nearly as fast as the, as the Titanic, but going at their full speed through an ice field at night to try to get there as quickly as possible. Uh, doing everything they possibly could and everything they did to prepare to take on the survivors well before they ever, ever got close. I mean, he was really a, the right person at the right time. And yeah. the only uh, non-American to ever get a Congressional Medal of Honor, the only civilian to ever get a Congressional Medal of Honor. And uh, I think uh, certainly uh, deserved it. I would actually really like to see a movie or miniseries about the rescue of the Titanic told from the story of the Carpathia. And Arthur Ostrom. That would be a, you know, I like that a lot. Everyone's focused on the Titanic and the Carpathia is kind of an afterthought. But I think you're right. I think that would make for a, a very good story. Yeah. I mean, maybe it didn't. Ha- I, I haven't researched the Carpathia, so nobody at me about this in particular. I haven't really looked into the demographics of uh, who was aboard the Carpathia, but I assume that you could also have a similar sort of a societal style drama to begin with, with a little bit of character building intrigue. But I do think that the story of the rescue and again, aboard the Carpathia, how everyone just kind of leapt into business. You know, they were told that there is an emergency and we need you all to act accordingly. And everyone said, yes, sir. Yeah. That's incredible to me. Oh, uh, I randomly decided to look it up. The young man that you mentioned who uh, stood back with the men, because he had just turned 17. His name was Alfred George John Rush. Alfred Rush. He was a third class passenger 
He was 17 years and one day old when he passed. Speaking of people who just did what they thought was was right. And it is incredible to hear so many stories of people overriding their survival instincts because they're very strong. Yeah. I I don't know that I'd be able to stay. I'm thinking of a modern equivalent, stay here and continue typing out emergency messages. If there was water at my waist, I think I'd leave. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the wireless operators were very, very uh, dedicated young men. It was unusual that they had two, uh, on there, so they get a 24-hour operation. Uh, mm-hmm. That was one of the major problems. And by the time they were sending out the messages, a lot of the ships in the area, uh, their operators had already gone gone to bed for the night, so yeah. we're not able to able to, to pick that up. One of the things that you know conf- that always confused me was why uh, Captain Smith uh, went at such high speed, even with the report of ice. And I've just recently found out that around shortly before four o'clock that afternoon, he actually had the ship turn to a more southerly bearing <laughs> to try to avoid the bulk of the ice. Uh, and that way, you know, just going full speed ahead and yeah, we're going to just go around the ice field. Uh, it was a good thought. One of the problems was it got him out of the most heavily traveled lane of traffic and so again, reduce the number of ships that were immediately nearby that could have responded uh, to the uh, to the uh, disaster. Yeah, it's 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 sad to look back on these things and think, wouldn't it be so easy if you hadn't did that, or wouldn't it have been better if this didn't happen? It's and that's also the frustrating thing about looking back on all these disasters again with our twenty twenty three superior knowledge and thinking, well. Why would you do silly something silly like that? Why would you make a dumb decision like that? Why were you so risky? What is wrong with you? And maybe he was just being risky and didn't care. I have no idea. You know, I <laughs> I, I don't know this guy. You know, I, 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 I don't know Captain Smith or that much about him, but there's so many things to look at and think if only it had been just 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 a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. And I say if if the uh, if the light if the lookouts had been a little bit faster. They could have avoided the iceberg altogether. Mm-hmm. If they'd been a little bit slower, it would have hit head, head, head on. Then that would have been a survivable event. At most, you would have flooded two compartments, and it could survive having up to four compartments flooded. But the fact that they responded just quick enough to scrape along the side instead of hitting it straight on was what sealed its, its fate. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many other things you can say, like if they were going slower, they would have gotten there later in the day. Maybe the sun would have started coming up. You would have been able to see so many things you can say. Should it be if this should have, could have, would have. Yeah. Well, if the uh, if the SS America had collided with the Titanic just as it was pulling out, you know, the the stern line on the America broke. Mm -hmm. They said it got within four feet of hitting the Titanic and it was in the in the river test. And it was going at low speed and it couldn't navigate, you know, it couldn't move out of the way. And if a tugboat hadn't got there just in time, uh, there would have been a collision. And if nothing else, that would have delayed the departure just for inspection. Yeah. <coughs> so many things, you know, so many, so many things that could have happened that didn't. And if there hadn't have been a coal strike, if there hadn't have been this, if there had been this, if there had been the binoculars, if there hadn't been a crew switch, you know, who you don't know yeah so many ways of knowing if there'd been a crew switch then it would have been light toller on duty at that time would it have gone better or worse you never know never know never know but um i just checked my timer that i do need to have running and i am very pleased with myself this has not been like a three-hour thing that i let let get away from me Because I could have, eas- I could easily talk to you for for an extremely long time. I find, as I mentioned, I'm fascinated by true crime. I love writing, um, and I love comics. I, you know, before I let you go, there is one thing that I want to just emphasize to everyone is that the comic is ba- is based on a poem and it is short. But I think that you should you read it. Comics take so much time and effort to produce that I think it's a little easily dismissed because of how quick they are to consume. Um, but the really, really intensive works of love and collaboration. And I do think that more people should read it. Bradley, what is the title of this wonderful comic? 
It's called Dark Trist, D-A-R-K, Dark, and then Trist is T-R-Y-S-T. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, mm-hmm. Bradley Harper is my author name, and you can look at uh, the other books or other things I've I've produced as well. I've got uh, <clears throat> the audio books. Uh, the first audio book of my uh, of my Jack the Ripper story won uh, uh, Earphone Award from Audiophile Magazine, and I'm proud mm-hmm. to say that A Knife in the Fog is a recommended read by the Arthur Conan Doyle estate. Cool. How oh, very cool. Yes. Go ahead and check that out. Go ahead and check out A Knife in the Dark and uh, Reflections in a Dragon's Eye, which is coming out by the time you hear this. It will already be out. So go ahead and pick up a copy of that and keep your eyes out, hopefully in the next couple of years, maybe for uh, Maiden Voyage. All right. Well, thank you awesome. very much. Thank you. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at TitanicTalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's TitanicTalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!